Welcome to the Spiritual Geek Out Podcast. I'm your host, Diane Hudock, where we have fun talking about the phenomenal and the fascinating. From angels to energy healing, from mystical places to mystical teachings, this is a place where we nerd out on the science of the soul. I am here today with two incredible human beings with a story that is deeply compelling, inspirational, and thoroughly divine. Their story, in my opinion, and my hope, will break your heart wide open. In 1997, Jeffrey Olson experienced a horrific automobile accident that took his lives, took the lives of both his wife and his youngest son. He suffered multiple life-threatening injuries himself, including the amputation of his leg above the knee. As well as a result of this accident, he he had many out-of-body experiences. He had a specific out-of-body experience, which he will go into, shared death and near-death experiences. And they brought great spiritual insights, both uncommon and extraordinarily unique in today's world, I would say. Dr. Jeff is an experienced shared death phenomenon um, person, uh, being an ER doctor and being present during the time of Jeffrey Driscoll's accident. And he's had many spiritual encounters himself during his work as an ER physician. And one, of course, as I mentioned, being an integral link in this experience. I'm so thrilled to have you both here together to share this story, both individually and your own individual experiences that can bring so much light to the hearts of many. So thank you, Dr. Jeff, and thank you, Jeffrey, for being here on the Spiritual Geek Out podcast. It's, it's an honor. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having us. Yeah. Yes, wonderful. Thank you. And for time, Jeffrey is with us for about 30 minutes. So let's start with you, Jeffrey. And if you don't mind, um, I might add, as I was mentioning before our talk now, that I was deeply entrenched in both of your books, which I read to the very last end, and it was absolutely moving. I, I've shed many tears in the past 48 hours. <laughs> and I highly recommend our listeners um, take a look at those books, which we will get into. Um, And I want to mention, because I think it's worthy of mention, is that when I was reading your book, your wife who passed on, as I believe it to be, in the experience I had that was so radical, she came into the room. Ugh, makes me just want to weep right now. And um, I just... I just lost it. And she said, thank you for sharing the story. And I said, well, what should I talk about? And she said, they need to know that God is good. And so I thought I'd start off from that point of those words. Is God good? After everything you've endured, after everything you've seen, after everything you know, is God good? And how is God good? Wow. What a profound thing. And, and you know, she does this. She's such an active soul. I mean, Dr. O'Driscoll and I are friends 
because she appeared in the operating room and communicated with him and her message to him was gratitude. And yet, you know, for that communication, they need to know that God is good. That's the simplicity and the beauty of who she is and of the message. Yes, we've been through horrific things. I was in an automobile accident 24 years ago that took Tamara's life. She was only 31. She was a young woman, a young mother. And it also took the life of our youngest son, Griffin, who was our miracle boy. I mean, we had worked to get him here. We had our first son quite normally, and yet Griffin, you know, there was complications. Tamara had had, you know, issues from the pregnancy and, 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 and uh, anyway, Griffin was our miracle boy, but here was this little family. And um, I think the difficult part of the story is I was driving the car. It was a family road trip. And um, I believe I, I may have just nodded off, just dozed off for a minute, but whatever happened, I, swerved to the right, overcorrected to the left, and the car rolled. And I had the cruise control set, so it rolled off, not off the road, but down the road, and, and it was a horrific accident. Um, you already outlined, I mean, my leg was amputated, my back was damaged, my arm was damaged, the seatbelt cut through me. The physical injuries were horrific, which is why Dr. Jeff got involved. I was extricated from the car and life flighted to uh, the nearest level one trauma center. Um, I, I lost everything that I thought was good and true and forever, <laughs> except my, my oldest son, who was only seven at the time, survived the accident. And yet I had a profound out-of-body or near-death experience um, where I was held in the arms of God. And she knows that. And then for her to come to you and say, is God good? Here's where I experienced something so profound that it turned everything I thought I believed inside out and upside down. Because the divine being that held me was so full of unconditional love. Nothing but unconditional love. And I had grown up in a belief that everything had conditions. You know, that life was a test. I better be good. I better do it right. I better, you know, measure up. And yet the God that held me was so full of love, I realized that life was not a test at all, that life was an absolute gift. And I also had the profound knowing <clears throat> that Tamara's love <laughs> was good too, even though she left. She passed on, um, and, and it's, it's all in my book, Knowing, but boy, what she has taught me is that God is good, and that she was good, even to the point that she loved me enough to go, yeah. that my soul's journey, and my soul's expansion, and, and all, that she was a big part of that, these soul groups, as we may call them, families, wh whatever terms we want to put on it, that she played a role in that, where she loved me enough to go and my little son, Griffin, they, they broke my heart in ways that could not be imagined that my heart would be open, that the insights and the blessings and the goodness could come. So in simplicity, is God good? Absolutely. We make God bad. We, we make God like us, judgmental and right. And, you know, uh, we spend very little time trying to become like God and the God I know is absolutely loving.
and absolutely compassionate and absolutely empathetic understands and comprehends to the very core of every human experience and every human journey and champions us and loves us unconditionally. Mm. Well, I should quote your book to that point from the book, Knowing, which is again, an incredible, incredible read and so many um, keys for, I believe, for life and of course, applicable to all. And you say, I used to believe God was testing me in some way and wanted me to prove my faith somehow. I have come to a deeper truth. God isn't testing me at all. God knows me perfectly. It was me who didn't know myself. We come from perfect love and we will return to it someday. But for now, we love imperfectly, beautifully flawed in this lower dimension. Yet our skinned knees and scraped palms are not signs of shame, but rather badges of courage for having come to play the game. We are beautiful in our brokenness, brokenness and perfect in the chaos, regardless of the judgments we may put on it. Each moment is sacred. Each moment is a gift. Life is not a test. Life is a gift. And I think that really sums up what you just said and all the goodness that is present. It's all a gift. And it's so hard for us to sometimes look at that when we're in the chaos and we're in the mess and we're in the resistance and the contraction and the fear and the judgment and all of it and the separation. Yeah. 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 And, and, and I've been there. You know, we, we all have. We all get our turn in and out of that thing that we judge as the dark night of the soul. And yet I've, I've grown more from those challenging things, perhaps, than from the joyful days. And, uh, and therefore, God is good. It is a gift. You mentioned in your book, as you've now remarried to an incredible woman, and you have two more children, mm-hmm. and so many blessings, of course, around that. And you also, me- also mentioned in your book uh, uh, that incredible story about uh, Tamara who um, had that uh, precognition of seeing you be married again. Did you have a precognition at all of that? When she said that, was there a knowing in you that you knew she was right? No, not in the least. I mean, I I was worried that my wife had had a dream and was and was upset at me for something that had never happened. And and just to put it in context, uh, the the day before we left on this little family road trip, so this would have been what one, two, three, like four days before her actual death, she had a dream, and in the dream she dreamt I was marrying someone else, and I was so concerned, like, well, why would you dream that? You know, I love you. You know that we're blissfully happy what what on earth are you having a subconscious thought like that for and um she she was disturbed by it because she said well for some reason i was actually okay it's like i was okay with this mm-hmm. and and i didn't know what to do with that um in that moment but boy in hindsight i say wow you know wow you mean you <laughs> you you knew and uh, and i didn't i had no preconceived notions I think I was so busy being a man, being a father, being a provider, being the, you know, I think I was so busy in once again trying to measure up to the test that I had 
remove myself from those deeper spiritual inklings that really matter. Right. And, and she had not. So. Yeah, you bring up a really beautiful point. Uh, as I believe, spirit, you know, our work doesn't end when we leave this body, of course. And she was a big part in orchestrating your second wife coming into your life as she, as you got that message loud and clear. And you, she said that um, she will teach you unconditional love. And I believe we all come here with a curriculum or curriculums. Do you think your curriculum is to learn specifically? We all need to learn unconditional love, I think, as human beings. But what do you think like Jeffrey Olson's curriculum is? When you go, this happened because I needed to complete what? You ask such good questions. Thank you. And it, it, it was unconditional love. But now in the 24 years of hindsight of all that's happened, you know, the accident, the, the rebuilding a life, the remarrying, the adopting two boys, the creating a family, the bottom line, this all happened that I could learn self-love. Self-love, the unconditional love of myself, because I, you know, I, I lost those things I loved so dearly. Mm-hmm. And then I attempted to rebuild all those things that not, not in a replacement, but, you know, an external validation. Well, if, you know, if, if I can put this thing back together and what, what, what desperately needed rebuilding was my own self-love, my own self-acceptance, my own self-esteem. And, uh, you know, and suddenly little simple truths, you know, like the golden rule, love your neighbor as yourself that I was taught as a child. Wow, I had forgotten the self-love. And how on earth can I love my neighbor when I don't love myself? I can only give what I have. And that's the bottom line. It's a great question. Well, you go into your book as you share that just now. It makes me think about the point in your book where you're still in deep recovery from these incredible um, injuries that are just beyond uh, just, we won't go into them unless you want to, but they were um, pretty, pretty intense injuries um, and continuous struggles from an infection around the corner, pneumonia, losing your leg, all the things that come with that. And yet, there was this point where you just said, um, wow, I'm, I'm so happy when you mention, I should mention you run into a friend from high school. I think it was in the chapel who was in a wheelchair and he was sort of envious that you had like, as you put it, like a stump and he has two legs, but he can't walk ever again. And you just go, wow. I, it felt so good to just grieve another person's pain, feel yeah. another person's pain, to get it off myself. Can you go into that? Yeah. That, gosh, you, you were bringing up such beautiful life lessons from the book. but And it wasn't in the chapel. It was actually in the uh, the rehabilitation. Okay. I was going into, I mean, I call it a gym, you know, but as a hospital gym. I mean, I, I'd been a Division One athlete. You know, I was used to training and being in the weight room and all these things. And they had me with my one arm that 
could work, which was my, my left shoulder, which is a class five AC separation. The right arm was still unusable because the accident tore the entire rotator cuff up, but they had a, they had a little two pound weight in my left arm that I was attempting to lift. And, and I, you know, woe is me, right? Look at me, look at the state of my body. I can only lift a two pound weight. And then in comes this kid in a wheelchair that we had played against each other in high school football. And I recognized him. He was from a neighboring uh, town, Park City. And yeah, he had broken his back in a car accident. He was uh, paraplegic. Uh, we shared some insights and he, you know, I was still trying to one up him, you know, well, you know, cause he said, wow, you, you, you know, I said, look at this. I can only lift two pounds. He says, yeah, but you're going to walk someday and I'm never going to walk again. And I said, yeah, but my wife and my child were killed in the accident. He said, my wife and child are still alive, but they left me because she couldn't deal with the fact that I was going to be in a wheelchair the rest of my life. And, and I, just, I just thought, wow, what? Yeah. I mean, no matter how bad you think you're having it, there's somebody somewhere who's, who's having an even more challenging time. And, and he inspired me. I mean, he inspired me. And I thought, you know what? I am going to walk out of here. And, and that was like fuel to the fire to get well and to, to, to make something and, and uh, to stop feeling sorry for myself, you know? Yeah. In your book, you talk about how um, the question that's presented to you through all of this is uh, how have you loved? Or I might even say, how well have you loved? If I was going to amend that question. <laughs> And it makes me also think, and we'll get into Dr. Jeff's book uh, in a bit here, but he brings up something in his book as a parallel when he talks about the lesson of it's not what we do, but it's who we become. It's who we became in this life. And it's makes me think about, it's like, how much did we love? We may have never had the money or the job or even the relationship, or the fame, the power, or even you, you name it, whatever is on the exterior that holds importance for you. But the, the, the gold, the, the, the prize is really all that stuff within about our inner becoming and that inner um, awakening of the loving. And it's these, these seeds that are just seeking to be um, fed and nourished in our human experience, at least I believe. And sometimes things like a profound um, or a, a really horrible accident is the impetus or the vehicle by which we get to come into our becoming. Yeah. Do you feel that's accurate for you? It is accurate. It is accurate. And, and, and you know, the, the question I was asked very specifically, and I'll never forget it because it was asked by that divine voice was, to what degree have you learned to love? To what degree? Right. What degree? And I'm like, well, wow, what, what does that mean? And, and like I say, in hindsight, well, I hadn't loved myself yet, you know, and, and, and was I really loving humanity in an appropriate way? And, um, and, and this becoming notion too, I, I you know, I often use the word remembering. 
I'm, I'm remembering who I really am. I'm, I'm, I'm remembering, I'm putting the pieces together and remembering that, that divine perfection that, that, that we all came from and, and, and manifesting that, um, you know, and, and so, yes, we're all learning, we're all experiencing, but I, I, in many ways, think we're unlearning and simply remembering the true essence of who we are, which is love, and it is perfection, and it is unique. We all get to be different, but gosh, can we embrace the perfection in each and every one of us in our unique state? Yeah. Do you still feel her around? I imagine you still have experiences. Why would they stop? your divine being having human experience what's happened lately well she yeah she's she's always near no one's ever really gone i mean we say they die or they pass away or we lost them yeah. they're never lost <clears throat> they're they're connected still and um even my current wife tanya has had impressions and things from tamra they never knew each other in in life but uh, but she will have inklings. Um, more recently, when Tamara comes, it, it's it's joyful. It's so joyful, you know. And 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 I feel her happiness and her joy, and it makes me feel happy and joyful. And and she has reminded me in a very specific way that all there is is wisdom. You know, we're so judgmental of others and ourself and, and I'm particularly hard on myself, but she's reminded me that there's only wisdom and that we're simply here to learn. And everything that happens is in divine order. And I have free will and choice in every part of it, as far as how I experience it, what I learn from it and, and how I manifest that or what I remember about myself in those things to, uh, to be of service to others. You know, I mean, Dr. Jeff will talk about that. Every, every experience we go through actually allows us to serve others in a more profound way. We get the benefit of being more, what, uh, educated, enlightened, you know, more grounded. But, um, but that's what she reminds me is just that life is beautiful and that I have a choice. And if I choose joy, then life will be joyful. Yeah. I love that part in the book where she just says, choose joy. You say in your book, to trust is peace, to love is perfect, to know is divine. And I think that just pretty much says it all. <laughs> so. And I might add, since you can see me, and I know this is on audio for our listeners, but you might see there's another chair here because... Tamara said, put another chair for me to sit. <laughs> so I feel like I'm interviewing three people, not two. <laughs> well, you, you truly are. And Diane, thank you for sharing those personal sacred things. And, and you, you have no idea what you bring to me. That was, that, was a, that was a thing for her, is that she wanted, she wanted all the chairs filled up around mm -hmm. the table. So, you know, you're, you're, you're sharing this and you don't even realize it's like, oh, there's a little key. There's a little, there's a little nudge that only you would know. And uh, anyway, that's beautiful. And thank you for having me. Thank you for, for your beautiful, powerful, enlightened questions. 
and it's just an honor to spend some time with you. I, I want to stay connected if, if that For works. sure. And thank you for your time and sharing all your wisdom and insight and grace because the grace sits with all of it. So I hope as people listen to this story of yours and of Dr. Jeff's, they can really feel in their hearts the grace that's present. So thank you so much for your time and we'll thank be in you. touch. I will, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll follow up with you soon. Okay, wonderful. So Dr. Jeff, you have an extraordinary book yourself called Not Yet, which I just loved from beginning to end. Thank you for your book. Thank you for your service. And I consider you a bridge. Like you say, you are there for people when they're born as an ER physician and also present as this sort of um, minister, uh, if you will, before they pass on. And I might add not to relegate it just to you being a physician, but you are to me a bridge and a minister and a wayfarer for many outside of your so-called job. (laughs) It just happens to be that I believe spirit puts you in that place so that you could be there at those two incredible doors of experience in this so-called life of the opening and the second opening, if you will, to the next world and beyond. So I would love if you could go into your experience about, of course, Jeff's um, whole ordeal for the audience listening who are not familiar because your personal story is just as stunning and moving. Well, let me start by, as you say, uh, talking a, a few minutes about how Jeff and I met, Jeff Olson and I. He was in that horrible car crash a couple hundred miles from from Salt Lake, and he was taken to a local hospital with his horrific injuries, and then he was flown to my trauma center. Um, There was one nurse in the department who knew that I had spiritual experiences uh, that couldn't be explained by science or medicine, and she had them too, and she kind of pried out of me. (laughs) Uh, some of my experiences. And so we kind of had this connection. Uh, And when, when Jeff was arriving in our department, uh, another emergency physician and trauma team were there to take care of him. And I wasn't even planning to go in the room, but this nurse came and grabbed me by the arm and she said, you have to come. And I said, why don't, what are you talking about? And she said, she's there. You have to come. I said, who's there? And she said, his wife, she's there. You have to come. And then I knew what she was talking about. And so I went down to the trauma room and I walked into the trauma room and an army of people were taking care of Jeff who was unconscious on the gurney and standing above him in the air was his deceased wife, Tamara, whom I'd never met. I'd never met either one of them before. And people asked me, uh, well, what did you see? What did she look like? And she looked like the perfect form of her physical of her physical body, if you will. She was young at the time. She looked like she was in in the prime of her life. She had this glorious uh, brightness about her and this flowing uh, curly blonde hair. And she just expressed her profound gratitude for the care that we were giving her husband. Mm. 
Mm. Um, it was like the whole room got quiet for me. Everybody else kept doing their jobs, but for me, it was like somebody turned the volume down on the TV set. And, and, and for me, it was all quiet except for her. And I walked over and I looked down at Jeff on the gurney and I looked at his badly injured leg and remember thinking that he was going to lose his leg. And as I looked down at him on the gurney, I could still see Tamara standing behind me in the air because I could see in all directions at the same time. Hmm. And uh, we, we had this beautiful encounter in the, in the trauma suite and then we sent Jeff off to the operating room. I took off my gown and my shoe covers and walked out into the department, finished my shift and went home. And I never expected to see him again after that. Um, I'd had enough experiences like that in the emergency department at that time that uh, I, I came home. I wrote one sentence about it in my journal that I keep a daily journal and went to bed. And I never expected to see him again. And about a month later, this same nurse came and tugged on my arm again. And I said, go away. Sometimes I don't like it when you're tugging on my arm. She goes, we have to go tell Jeff what happened. I said, no, we don't. She goes, yeah, we have to go. I said, listen, if you want to go talk to a perfect stranger about your spiritual experiences, be my guest. But I don't feel any obligation at all. And, but she drugged me up to his uh, hospital room. And uh, we shared uh, what we'd experienced because the nurse experienced Tamara's presence as well. And uh, as we shared it with Jeff Olson, uh, he began to weep. And that's when he opened up and shared the experience he'd had at the scene of the accident with her. And it was very validating for everybody in the room that we had these shared experiences. And Jeff and I have been fast friends now for nearly a quarter of a century since. Incredible. It's just so divinely orchestrated, your friendship, this whole coming together and just humans helping humans it's uh and uh, i it really kind of renders me speechless i have to be honest i think the friendship is the biggest part of the miracle you'd think that i would be uh overwhelmed with the shared experience we shared in the in the hospital room that day and it was powerful but the thing that was more powerful to me that day was that as Jeff and this nurse and I talked, I had this growing knowledge in my soul that this day was to connect us to the next uh, chapter of our lives and that he and I would be friends and we'd share things for decades into the future. And that came to me that day, that first day we spoke. Hmm. You know, Jeff talks about his experiences, a remembering. And you talk about this experience sort of matter of faculty in the beginning, at least, which I really appreciate. And for someone like yourself, that's had a lot of spiritual experiences. There's something refreshing when you just describe it as you do in your book, that moment you saw Tamara, and you said it didn't come as some profound revelation or grand mystic truth being pushed upon me. It felt more like common knowledge hanging in the ether. This is referring to knowing that he was going to survive and your sort of telepathy with T Tamara. It came like common knowledge hanging in the ether, available to any spirit willing to listen. It was like the first twinklings of dawn announcing to anyone willing to open their eyes that another day was approaching. In my experience, that's the way spiritual knowledge feels. Even when it's new, it's not a surprise. It feels more like a confirmation than a revelation. 
I just love that because it's like one of my aims, I think, is at least through my personal experience to perhaps even stop looking at the profundity of all this and more the normalcy of it and normalize it more and more as best I can for people because we're all the same. We are all spiritual beings. We all have access. As you say, if we're just open to it, the veil again will drop. You have a lot of spiritual experiences, really unique, profound experiences, as you say, near life experiences. Is it still like that where you just get, yep, oh, okay, yep. Or was it ever a moment of just like, this is too much for me, or this is, um, I don't know, too much to handle? I have felt at times that it was too much to handle. And in fact, uh, there was a time in my life where I shut it all down. I said, I can't do this. Too many messages, too much responsibility, Mm -hmm. uh, too much stress. I just can't do it. And I just shut it all down for a time. So I was very naive at the time. I didn't understand that you could establish boundaries and that you could uh, control things. You know, I went from everything to nothing. So neither extreme was good for my for my life and my development but i've since learned that uh, spiritual things are very much like physical things you establish boundaries when somebody comes and asks you to do something on monday you might say yeah i can help you now or you might say i can help you on tuesday i'm busy right now but i can give you two hours on tuesday and you you have a negotiation and you establish boundaries and you can do that with spiritual things too so that you don't get overwhelmed and discouraged Mm, good answer i love that it makes, it makes me think of the experience you talk about in your book of that time where you get the hit, if you will, to go to this event. And of course, one thing leads to another as Providence would be, and you get this ticket, someone calls and says, you, you call, a, you call a, I think an associate and they have the ticket that you didn't even ask for yet, but they're gonna give it to you to go to this event some 200 miles away or some. And you go there and of course, you're placed in line at this event with this couple that are not yet married and you listen to her story as a brief, for a brief moment. I think when the, hus- uh, the husband-to-be in the future is uh, off at the bathroom or something. And she says and shares with you how she basically yearns to have a deeper connection and commitment. And you are guided by spirit as you are with him, sitting next to him, to share the story. And in fact, in your, in your reluctance to do so, Spirit says, and you, as you ask, why, why me? Why do I have to do this? Oh, come on. The Spirit says, this is why I brought you here. And if you refuse, you will be accountable. That was a really kind of wild thing for me to come upon in your book because it really, to me, demonstrates the responsibility or perhaps the contract that you have set up with the divine, if you will. Do you feel that you have this contract? And if you didn't say something to this man, which to long and short of it is, you said in just one or two words, it's time. And he said, I know. 
and he knew exactly what you were talking about. Do you feel this accountability? Do you feel this sort of contract play out in your life? And if you don't fall through, there is a... Um, I, I do feel that very much. Now, I've come to the point in my life where I don't think that man or woman would have been slighted in any way if I hadn't spoken up. Uh, source would have sent somebody else to give them a message or given it to them in some other way. But it would have had consequence in my life if I failed to speak up, I think. And, you know, some people have been pushing me pretty hard to share things in recent times. And there are things that sometimes I feel reluctant to share. And I, I was feeling this pressure from some friends to share. And I heard my own timid voice in my mind say, what if my message isn't good enough? And then I heard the voice that's been speaking to me for decades interrupt and say, it's not your message. And I just thought, oh, ego check, right? Right. And, and so a few weeks later, I'm laying in bed in the middle of the night. A spirit wakes me up and I couldn't go back to sleep for an hour or two. And uh, I finally asked, I said, why did you wake me up? And the voice said, I've been giving you messages. Why aren't you sharing them? And that's when I started my blog posts on my website. Which is? <laughs> my, my website is helpingsoulsheal.com. Beautiful. Or you can just use my name, jeffodriscoll.com. I will definitely check that out. You talk a lot about the theme of trust in your book, in my opinion. Trusting that... Um, you can perhaps even handle this, trusting that um, this is yours to take on, trusting yourself as a doctor, your inclinations was like that story you share about the teenager on his motorcycle and everything seems fine and all well, but then you get this hit to, I think get a CT scan and you see that he's bleeding. Uh, he's got a hematoma in the brain, I believe. And uh, if you sent him home, which maybe other doctors would do in that case, he'd be dead by midnight. What is that? Is that trust? Is that you being open to spirit? When I hear that, I go, gosh, it behooves every doctor to be connected to their, some, their unique, their whatever their path is of spirituality, of their connection to their innate, their larger self, the mystic, whatever, because that could literally make or break a life. And as I know, I'm asking a long question here, but as I ask that, I go, well, maybe it doesn't matter because if that person's meant to go, they're going to be with a doctor who misses something and that's perfect timing. But it's like knowing what you know and knowing what's available to you is all this based on a sort of acumen or is it trust? I think there is a lot of trust about it. And the trust comes out of practice. Uh, I'd been hearing and receiving messages and seeing uh, things uh, for decades by the time I had that experience. People, after I finally started to share, I never talked about any of this during my medical career. I never talked about these things until after I stopped seeing patients. And when people started talking to me, they'd ask me, when did this start? How did this start? And it sent me on a soul searching journey. And I finally realized it began a month before my 12th birthday when my older brother was killed in a farm accident. It was, it was after my brother's death 
that I started to have these experiences and they got more uh, clear and more profound. The more I listened, the more I acted on what I received, the more clear it became until when I was 19, I was still a teenager. I, I went to a person who was a few years older than me that I trusted because she had some experience and without any context at all for my question and using the vocabulary that I had as a teenager, I just asked her, I said, does God ever speak to you in senses? And she just looked at me and she had this knowing in her eyes and she kind of shook her finger at me a little bit. And she said, don't ever doubt that. Mm -hmm. Which mm -hmm. proved to be very good advice for me and something I've tried to honor through the decades. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You say something really beautiful in your book. You say prayer is simply an exercise because you're, you're a man of faith. And you say prayer is simply an exercise in penetrating the veil. And when I labor at the veil, I see and hear and feel what otherwise goes unnoticed. And it's almost like when we're open, when we're trusting, when we're available to that energy or that light or that source or that divine, what have you, intelligence, that we are, for lack of a better term, laboring in the veil as a walking meditation or a walking prayer. And we get to see the unnoticed. That's what I get when I read your book, at least. You're bringing forth a lot of things that would perhaps, quote unquote, <laughs> normally go unnoticed. Can you talk about your experience of your spiritual practice. Do you pray? Is it when you pray, is it a piercing of the veil? Do you get messages right away? Is it subtle? Is it light? Is it silence? Is it all of it? It's very much all of it. Some days I get impressions or thoughts or feelings. Some days I hear a voice that's very clear. Some days I know the voices from within. And some days it sounds like uh, a distinctive voice from outside myself. And sometimes I see things. Sometimes I see the messenger. Um, and so I've had all of those experiences. And I've, I've learned over the years that the experience is almost all, seems always to be tailored to the need and the circumstance. And, and if you just need a word or two, that's what comes. And if you need something more, that's what comes. And, and it's so important to act on what you receive. You know, we're really good at this notion that somebody can have a, a physical or a musical gift but they still have to practice 40,000 hours to become proficient on the instrument. Right. They still have to turn up with the team to practice if they want to take the field on game day. But we tend to think about spiritual gifts as if they somehow came upon us perfected and all we had to do was exercise them without practicing. Right. No, you have to start small and you have to work up and it takes years or decades. Yeah, well said. In my school, we call it spiritual exercises for a reason, because it's literally that. It's an exercise of sitting down, getting quiet, doing your chant, and listening to the sound current of creation. 
That's one of the things I do with my clients as well, because since I stopped seeing patients in the ER, I now actually see patients as an intuitive or spiritual mentor. And a lot of people come to me that feel they've never had a spiritual experience uh, or they feel like they're off on their spiritual journey somehow. And I help them kind of reconnect and give them some exercises to do to to practice and to learn and grow. And and it's it's wonderful working with people and helping them connect with their highest self and their most authentic path. Hmm. No doubt. Well, you helped me as I read a part of your book. It brought something really to the, um, it sparked an awareness within me that was like an aha moment for me. And I would have these reoccurring dreams some years ago when I was with an Indian teacher. Some people would call him a guru or a master, what have you. Uh, but we'll call him a spiritual teacher for this conversation. This, uh, but I would have these dreams, these reoccurring dreams of this man who's still on this planet. And I thought it was like Moses or something. And this was before I met him. And uh, I would show up to this river or this bay or cove and he'd be standing and walking on water. And he'd never say anything to me. And he was dressed in his sort of like white robes like you'd see in churches. And I thought, is this like an Indian teacher? Is this Jesus if he was, you know, 80 years old? Is this Moses? Who is this guy with the long beard and white hair? And he'd usher me to come to him and, and walk on water. And I'd always walk on, I'd walk on the water and then I'd kind of like, you know, like sink to the bottom. And he always thought it was really humorous and no words were ever exchanged. And I had this reoccurring dream over and over and over again for probably three months, maybe longer, but it was at least three months. And then some months pass and there's this Indian quote unquote master, I believe he's a master, who was in LA, this was 15 years ago. And do you wanna meet a Himalayan master? And I go to this yoga studio who, where he's doing a satsang. And he comes up to me and he's like, how's it going? And I said, oh, it's all right. He goes, you should come to my retreat tomorrow. And uh, he kept kind of calling me out. So I end up going to his retreat the next day comes up to me again in the middle of like the lunch break. And he says, uh, you know what we were doing when we were walking on water in those dreams, right? And of course I'm kind of like, uh, I think I know what I'm gonna say, but I don't wanna say it because I don't wanna be wrong. I don't wanna come off rude. And he says, I was raising your Kundalini. And I said, okay. But there's more to the story because as I read your book, there's been a sort of curriculum in my life with my spiritual experiences of like, how much, how long am I going to have doubt? How long is Diane going to have doubt? I've seen this being, I've had this experience. I've had this profound experience and you still doubt. And then I come upon your book and you talk about the story of Peter walking on water. And just to quote you, it all came full circle for me because you say in your book, why did Peter sink? When I ask people almost always, 
say it was because of fear and doubt. To that I say, yes, but what did he doubt? Then the answers come more slowly. When Peter answered Christ's invitation and stepped out of the boat, he had faith and he could walk up, he had faith that he could walk on water. After his first steps, knowledge supplanted his faith. He knew he could walk on water. He was doing so. When the wind raged, Peter didn't doubt that he could walk on water. He knew by experience that he could. His fear caused him to doubt whether he should continue to walk on water. And that was just like a pan that hit me over the head because it's really the fear that stops us in our tracks from receiving that grace, that understanding, and really, in my opinion, that knowing that surpasses all doubt. So thank you for writing that in your book, because for me, that was like a closing of a 15-year curriculum of understanding. So so now I know why I wrote it. It was for you. (laughs) Well, me and many, many others, if they... uh, if they choose to read it, and I know that they will get something from it that's uniquely, uh, purposely directed for them. Because you know, I, we, we need to be more like Peter. Yeah. We all need to be more like Peter. Peter sank, but before he sank, you know what he did? He walked on water. Peter, Peter stepped out of the boat of doubt, and he walked on the water of fear, and he did it. He got out of the boat. Everybody else stayed in the boat. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You, you, in your dreams, you walked on water. I sank, but I kept coming back to try again. <laughs> yes, but you did it. Before you sank, you did it. Right. Right? Right. So what if you sink? Walk on the water first. Worry about the sinking later. <laughs> well, well said. Well said. Deep. Do- how do you, how do you, um, who is God to you, Dr. Jeff? How do you describe God? God came to me in a very unusual way one day. And uh, I'm going to try and get through this without getting emotional because I feel it even now as I think about it. Mm. Um, I walked into a, a patient room in the ER and there was a homeless man sitting on the gurney. He had long scruff, scruffy hair and a long beard. Uh, his clothes were tattered and soiled. He struggled with addictions. He'd been walking around in the snow and he had holes in his shoes and holes in his socks. And uh, your feet don't do well in those kind of circumstances. I don't think we even really said much to each other. I just filled a wash basin with water and put some soap in it and sat down at the foot of the gurney with a wash rag. I took off his shoes and I took off the last threads of his socks and I washed his feet. Hmm. And something profound happened. That veil you talked about earlier, everything physical, everything mortal was drawn back. And I saw his soul. It was like when I saw Tamara in that trauma room, except this man was wide awake. 
but everything physical was drawn aside and I saw his soul and I understood I was in the presence of God. Mm. And I'm not saying that I'm not speaking in hyperbole. I understood that I was in a divine presence. And I went into that room thinking that I was going to serve this man. And, and I soon realized that he was there ministering to me. Mm. He was teaching me who I was. Because he was the antithesis of everything the world defines as success. And yet he was God. Yeah. And I understood that whether we're sitting in the pews at church or in the gutter, we're always next to God because that's who the person next to us is. And that's who we are. And I've looked at every soul differently since that day in the ER. Hmm. It makes me think of that quote from the Bible, and I'm no biblical scholar, so forgive me for butchering it, but I believe it goes, you do it to the least of these, you do it unto me. Yeah. Good, bad, or otherwise. Yeah. And, you know, I I, I share this, I think I share this in the book. Uh, I had a friend that invited me to go speak with him at a church meeting at, a sta- at the state prison. And I was reluctant to go. I didn't want to go, but he persuaded me to do it. And the moment I agreed to go, I started getting these downloads about the message. I thought maybe I should talk about repentance. That would be a good subject for people in prison, right? And But the message I kept getting was, no, don't talk about repentance. Talk about forgiveness. And I thought, oh, okay. And, and this guy, the police brought this a recently paroled convict into the ER one night. He was high on drugs. He he just got out of prison. He he went and found his dealer. He got high on drugs. The police chased him down. He came in in handcuffs. He died in the emergency department that night under my care. And a few days later, I go to speak in the prison. And the meeting started by the guy that was presiding over this congregation standing up and talking about how a recent parolee, a congregant in their group, had just died. And he said enough that I realized it was my patient that I'd seen in the ER a few days earlier. And suddenly he wasn't just an ex-con running from the police. Suddenly he was a soul. You know, he was, he, he was this, uh, he was me. And uh, Spirit spoke to me that night and said, I was in prison and you visited me. Yeah. That's who we are. That's all who we all are. And God is everywhere. It's like Jeff's story about the man that he ran into in the hospital in the rehab room. I read it and my memory was like he's in a chapel. It might as well have been a chapel because God is everywhere. It was a chapel. Yes. Um, There's another question, too, about how to answer this about who is God. There's another way to answer that. I was pondering about my own divine nature, about who we are, about our divinity. And uh, at the same time, I was pondering this notion I'd been taught all my life that God is intolerant of sin, cannot stand to be in the presence of sin. And I'm, I'm, I'm contemplating these, th- these two things together one day. And Spirit spoke to me and said, the God that is intolerant of sin is you. Whew. Good night. <laughs> We impose our own biases and judgments on God, and then we cite God as the source for right. to rationalize our feelings about things. Right, right. 
And God is either all loving or not. So which do you choose? So if God's all loving, why would he judge you for your actions? Yeah, I I think God's defining characteristic is that his love is unconditional. Mm -hmm. It's infinite and unconditional. Now, our choices have actions. Right. We can choose to deprive ourselves of certain things. We can we we can take ourselves into difficult paths and stuff, but it doesn't change God's love for us. And most importantly, it doesn't change our individual worth. Right. Our worth is infinite and eternal and unchanging. And even if we do things that have unpleasant outcomes or put us in positions that we don't like, it doesn't change our worth. Right. And when we understand that, we can make decisions based from a from power, understanding I might make a bad decision. It might have an adverse outcome, but it doesn't change who I am. Right. And next time I'll make a different decision and have a different outcome. Question for you. If God is all loving, but we're responsible creators, and we, I, I believe we're responsible creators, and we're responsible in other words, for what we create, meaning we're responsible for our actions. They don't, we can't just kill a person and then say, well, God will forgive me. And it just goes off away and just gets wiped clean where we still need to um, make up for the choices that we've done against creation. Would you agree with that? I do agree with that. Um, as I said, choices have consequences. You can go to, you can go to prison for murder and God still loves you. <laughs> you know, if my son were to commit a crime and end up in jail, I wouldn't love them less. I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't condone their, their bad behavior, and I wouldn't try to intercede and prevent their punishment. But none of that affects how much I love them. Right. And, and that's what we forget sometimes about God, is just because God is loving doesn't mean that love doesn't have some difficult and painful and unpleasant outcomes sometimes. Yeah. The universal law of the, the law of the universe is individual choice. It's agency. And the only way you can learn it is to learn the consequences that come from some of those choices. Yeah. But it has nothing to do with God's love. I think of it this way. Uh, imagine, imagine a God in an anthropomorphic God, a God in human form. Imagine this, you're walking along a path. You're walking together. God's telling you how much she loves you. And you turn and look off in the distance and you see something shiny. And you say, I want to go over there and check that out. And God says to you, well, you might not like the outcome over there. I'm going this direction. If you want to walk with me, come walk with me. But you have choice. So go do what you want. And I won't love you any less. So we wander off in another direction to go check out the shiny thing. Our distance from God is not a consequence of God loving us less or our worth changing. It's simply a consequence of our choice to walk in a different direction. Mm-hmm. And when the shiny thing doesn't turn out to be what we hoped it would, we can turn around and come back. And when we catch up with God, who's still walking the path, and she says, welcome back, I've always loved you. Our return to God is not a consequence or a change in our worthiness or our worth or God's love for us. It's simply a consequence of a choice. Mm-hmm. That's how I think of it. Yes, I, I would agree with that. Well, you are a physician, in my opinion, a mystic, a spiritual man who is committed to the spiritual path and a minister. And 
My question is being of the spiritual um, ilk and being a physician, what does God, spirit, your intuition, your innate, tell you about the purpose of this corona? Just to make sure I understand your question, when you say this corona, you mean? COVID, SARS-CoV-2, this pandemic, this experience on planet Earth right now. Right. Well, I'm kind of an eternal optimist in some ways. And uh, I, I can see in some ways that COVID is to teach us to all that we're all one, mm-hmm. that our actions do affect what other people around us, that we can all help each other when the time arises and the need. And there's been an awful lot of people pass. A lot of people have died. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm not sure anybody has died before their time or before what was, you know, their, their particular path to, to pass at that time. I don't see the death as this horrible, dark thing that a lot of people talk about. Um, I, I see COVID as an opportunity for us all to come together to help one another and to be one. Beautiful. Well, I thought I'd end on some of the lessons learned that you share in your book at the end of your book. And I just thought I'd go through them just so people can hear it. The lessons you learned, quell ego, believe, be willing, eliminate fear, breathe, ponder, ask, listen, feel, write it down, trust, don't judge, forgive, serve, touch, practice, remember, share, love, keep going. Which one stands out for you the most right now in your life and why? Well, the love is an awfully big one, of course, but the last one you read, Keep Going, kind of just struck a chord with me as you said it, because that came from my brother, that brother that died in that farm accident when we were kids. He came to me when I was literally writing the last couple sentences of the book. Um, I was working at the computer. I became aware of a presence over my shoulder, a profound spiritual presence. And for some reason, I didn't recognize who it was. And I finally asked, I said, who are you? And he said, I am your brother. And I said, well, what are you here for? What do you want me to do? And he said, keep going. Mm. And uh, I, I thought it, at the moment, I thought, well, you know, I was, it had to do with writing the book. But literally, I was writing the last couple sentences of the book. A few months later, it was published, and I had a bunch of them in my bag. And I was going to the first time I was going to speak publicly about my spiritual experiences in the emergency department, about seeing souls leave their bodies when they die and having them communicate with me and some of this stuff. And I was in the airport lounge and this young couple came and sat down next to me and started asking the usual airport questions. Where are you going? What are you doing? And when they got to the point where they asked me what I was going to be speaking about, and I told them, this young woman's whole countenance changed. 
And she looked at me and she got really serious. And she said, my grandfather just died and he's come to me a couple of times. <laughs> and I, and I initially I thought, why would you tell something so intimate to a perfect stranger? And then I realized that I was a safe place and she knew I'd believe her. So she took one of my books and she went and caught her plane and I got on my plane. Uh, I'd been an emergency physician for 25 years. I estimated I'd seen in excess of 60,000 patients by then. On the, in the air uh, between Salt Lake and Boston, uh, a voice spoke to me and said, you will help more people with this book than you helped as a physician in the emergency department. Hmm. And then I realized what my brother was talking about when he said, keep going. He was mm -hmm. talking about sharing, helping, uh, teaching. Uh, so it gave me a whole different perspective of the next chapter of my life. Hmm. Well, you are teaching many. You've taught me in the past 24 hours. I have all your words just close to my heart. And it's brought so much um, completion for me in some things that were heavy on my heart. I don't even know if I would say heavy, but maybe deep in my subconscious that weren't completed. And now I, I have this sort of confirmation. And uh, I, I would second that to keep going because you're just getting started. And I'm really grateful for you to be here and share everything you've shared to me. I love that you said earlier that you had an aha moment reading my book. Yeah. When people ask me about my mentoring and stuff, they ask me what I do. I, and I tell them, I say, I bring people to their aha moment. <laughs> when I was uh, quite a bit younger, I had an older friend. He was twice my age, just a brilliant guy. And he was just steeped in spiritual experience. He'd had some really soul stretching life experience. And he was a very spiritual person. He believed in the laying on of hands. And he asked me one day if he could give me a blessing. I said, yeah, sure. I'd love it. He laid his hands on my head and he gave me this lengthy blessing. And one of the things he said in the blessing was, teach people the truth in such a way as to help them realize they've always known it. And uh, it, that is just such a powerful way to help people honor their path, to realize who they are. When they just have that aha moment and they go, oh, of course, it makes sense now. Yes, yes. When I started writing a book some years ago, which has not been published and it's still sitting on my computer, and it makes me think about that when I read your book, because the first chapter in the book I was writing as I was receiving messages from this being was chapter one, doubt. And I have these dreams about walking on water, and I have these experiences that these beings say, stop your doubting. What do I have to do? Does Jesus have to sit on your lap now? Like, do the angels need to come and have like a party every Friday night? Do they need to, yeah, one angel, two angels, three angels, not enough. You need it, what, you need 50? You need them to be taller. You need them to be more, you know, decorated and full of, you know, what is it that will eradicate the doubt? And then reading your book and then, oh, okay. Yeah. And it was that aha moment. Yeah, in fact, I, I felt a very strong spirit as, as you were saying that, and maybe you'll choose to edit this out of the, of the podcast, I don't know, but um, as you started to say those things, what came to me was publish your book, then your dream will change about walking on the water. Oof. 
and cut. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you for that. That is the, um, the greatest closure to this episode. And thank you for the encouragement. I had another person on that. Uh, his name's uh, Peter Panagor. Oh, had, I love Peter. Oh, love him to bits. Love him to bits. And uh, he encouraged me as well. And he said something really, really powerful. And he said, you know, people from like the shamans or indigenous um, societies or uh, indigenous communities or just anyone really recognize these spiritual communities, recognize that when someone has a spiritual experience, it's not theirs to hold onto. It's theirs to pass around, to share, and to ignite it through the telling of it. Right. And, and I learned that along the way. That's like I told you when Spirit spoke to me, it's, uh, I was worried about my message and, and Spirit said, it's not your message. Yeah. I'm giving you messages. Why aren't you sharing them? <clears throat> and I had this realization. Nobody's waiting in line to write my message. <laughs> That's my job. And, and I'll tell you one other thing I learned, too. <clears throat> Messenger came to me one morning and said, every experience is to enable you to help someone else. And I said, wait a minute. I, th I thought experiences were for personal growth. And the messenger said, the primary purpose of every experience is to enable you to help someone else. You get the secondary benefit of personal growth. Mm -hmm. Gave me a 180 degree shift in why we have difficult, painful experiences. It's to give us empathy. Yes. Some experiences are for your growth. But more importantly, most of them are to enable you to help others. Yes. And so sharing your experiences will help others. It will fulfill you. It will, it will complete your circle. Jeff Olson stood at mile marker 80. And Spirit spoke to him and said, and it said, share your story and people will heal. Mm. Well, I hope everyone listening to this and myself included that we take your message to heart. And because I know everyone, everyone has a story. Everyone has something to say and everyone has something to share and service is where it's at. So thank you a million thank yous, Jeff, Dr. Jeff O'Driscoll for everything. Thank you for having me. It's been an honor. Hey guys, thanks for checking out the Spiritual Geek Out podcast. If you like what you're hearing here, check out more by subscribing on your favorite platform or go to spiritualgeekout.com.